0: Can you imagine a world that is completely filled with peace? Can you imagine a place where war and fighting and striving is a hard concept to understand? the United Nations building in New York City, right outside, there is a wall with the inscription that comes from a Bible verse. It comes from Isaiah chapter 2, and it says that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they make war anymore. So when you go to New York City, to the United Nations building... That is the first thing that you'll notice as you're walking in. That's right outside, right in front. And that is their hope. That is the promise that they work toward. Can you imagine a world where there's no color chart of a hierarchy of threats to your country? Where, where utopia is just kind of normal? Can you, can you imagine a, a world where everything is perfectly fair, where politicians are all saints, (laughs) where every human is treated with dignity and value, where no one selfishly takes advantage of another. Based on your feedback, I realize that's a stretch of the imagination. But imagine a world that is ruled by, by one perfect mind, and where every decision is always the right one. Try try to imagine a world where vaccinations are not necessary because everyone's health is such that if you died at 100, you were said to have died as a child. You don't actually have to imagine very hard You don't have to stretch your imagination super far because that is actually the the world that is described under the term the kingdom in the Bible. There is this kingdom that has been prophesied and foretold for centuries in the Old Testament that, that the kings and the scribes and the prophets and the people of God looked forward to for thousands of years, that God would establish a reign like this And that he would send a ruler, a a Messiah, a deliverer to establish it, to uphold it, and to rule over it. It's this kingdom, the coming kingdom of God, that the Jews thought of when, when they would hear of the term and the descriptions of the Messiah. This is where their mind went. They were hoping that their king, their deliverer, would come to set up this kingdom and liberate them. So this morning, uh, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Whether your Bible's in your lap or on an app, shout out to Church Online, uh, I'd love for you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. If you're watching online, there's actually a Bible tab right next to the video screen there. Uh, you can click that without ever, leaving the, uh, without ever leaving the site. So we'd encourage you to join us in the Bible tab there as well. Isaiah chapter 9, starting In verse 6, and as we do, I'd invite you to go ahead and stand up with me. We're going to read this out together. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6, and it says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you. You can be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Our God, our our Prince of Peace, our wonderful Counselor, we invite you here this morning into our hearts to speak to us. Please, please lower the volume of the distractions in our lives, and I pray that our hearts would be soft and ready to receive your word this morning. Would you speak in ways that I cannot? Would you use these feeble and imperfect lips to say your eternal perfect words to us today? Lord, make me a vessel that is... Usable for your kingdom and that you would reign in our hearts. Amen. Before we dive too far into this text, I want to back up and give you a little bit of historical and uh, scriptural context here for what we just read. Because this is a massively significant couple of verses, and I fear that in our 2020 Western mindset, a lot of this is lost on us. So the, the, the situated context that this is received in, that this text is, this is literally God speaking through Isaiah to his people. Isaiah is a prophet. God gave him words. He spoke them and wrote them down. And and Isaiah, the majority of, just reading up until chapter 9, the majority of what God is saying to his people through the prophet Isaiah is a list of warnings. Do not stray from me. Return to me, or I will bring discipline to you, my children, Israel. And one of the things that God says previously right before this chapter in chapter 8 is that I will use Assyria, which was the governing, dominating world power at the time. I will use Assyria as my instrument, as my tool of discipline towards you, Israel. Please return to me. Now a little bit about Assyria. Assyria literally was dominating the economy and the military might of the known world at the time. And so this map is kind of a little bit washed out in the light, but there's two different regions, one within each another, and it's basically the shrinking of the, 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 the power of Assyria. So the larger part that extends all the way to the top and all the way to Egypt, that larger part was uh, the, the height and the pinnacle of Assyrian dominance, a couple hundred years before Isaiah came onto the scene. That smaller part within it, just barely holding on to Israel, uh, is a few hundred years after Isaiah was on the scene. So so right in the middle of that shrink is where Isaiah comes onto the scene. In, in Assyria, power-hungry, is grasping at world domination still. A couple hundred years later, Babylon is going to come in and overthrow, but um, they're obsessed with foreign domination to the extent of demanding complete and total loyalty upon a threat of what they would do is they would take the entire noble class and deport them to another part of the empire, and then take a noble class there and deport them to. So you would have the entire um, ruling noble class that governed the majority of the wealth in any particular region or town uh, moved away and another one brought in. And so the entire ideology and economy and how things worked out actually played in the favor of Assyria. And they would threaten this uh, if, if you appeared to be a rebellious province. They would even come in and just set up military rule and domination if uh, the way things were going was deemed to be rebellious. And so in Isaiah 8, 11 through 22, we're going to read this in a second. God gives Isaiah this strong warning: avoid following the way of Assyria. Don't be like them. Don't cave in to the pressure. This dominating superpower that controls your military and controls your economy. You, you read this and you go, man, that seems so distant. That seems so removed. Why would they want to be like them when they're being oppressed by them? Don't forget how tempting it would be to just blend in and orchestrate your life around the way of life of Assyria. Right? You, you don't want your, your little life in your tiny country dominated by a superpower to be threatened. Like it would be so much easier just to look like them, to blend in, to go the way that they're going because you fear them and so you're going to kind of move in there. You're going to gravitate in their direction so as to avoid the most amount of trouble. God says through the prophet Isaiah, this is Isaiah 8, 11, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of his people. He said, don't call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Come on, that's a word for today. Um, Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. For both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They'll fall. They'll be broken. They'll be snared and captured. So bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me were signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not should a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on the behalf of the living? Through the law and the testimony, if, if they don't speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they'll roam throughout the land. They're famished, they'll become enraged, looking upward and curse their king and their God. And they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness." Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Currently, Galilee, take note of this for later, currently a Gentile village. In the future, future, he's going to honor Galilee of the Gentiles. How? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. In the future, there will be a great light that is coming from Galilee. In the land of the, uh, those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They'll, they'll rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, when Gideon routed Midian and God did it through him, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and fuel for the fire. No more war anymore. And you read this about the shift from gloom to glory, about the shift from, from darkness to light, and the natural, logical question is, how, Lord? How, Are you going to lift this gloom and this distress and this oppression from us? Where will this great light and increased joy come from? And this is where we receive the words that we just read. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase or of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it forever in justice and righteousness. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The first thing that Isaiah's audience would have heard or noticed about this promise, about this prophecy, this free and joy-filled future of God's people is that it would have been under the government of a child, a son who's given to it. And he will be what characterized the entirety of their experience. Everyone and everything under his reign will be characterized by how he rules. This child, this child that is given, will be what characterizes it. And, and he's going to put the government on his shoulders, but, but what does he govern? What are within the boundaries of what he governs so as to distinguish it from those who are not? In other words, who's the us that he's talking about? Who's us? Those in his kingdom. Translation, those who are submitted to his lordship, those who have come under his reign and are subject to him. So the second thing we know, notice is the names that are given to him. The names that are given to him, these are going to describe what he's going to be like and by extension what his government will be like, how he rules. He will be known as Wonderful Counselor. He'll be known as Mighty God. This kid will be known as Everlasting Father. This child will be known as the Prince of Peace. And then we notice what his kingdom and his government will be like. This is, this is amazing. This is hope-filled. This is joy-filled. His government. He will reign, and the peace he accomplishes will have continuing increase greatness. Now that word's translated a few different ways. Greatness, increase, expanse. Uh, Really what it means is filling the entirety of. So not like, oh, his kingdom was small and now it got bigger. It increased. No, what it means is like it's completely, has already filled every little space available. It's expanse. It's going to have no end. It will be continuing on as great forever. Even though Assyria is continually shrinking at this point, his kingdom will never shrink. It will stay expansive. It will be pervasive, and it will be eternal. This kingdom. And then it will, this reign will fulfill promises made to King David. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Now, uh, there's, there's many passages in Scripture that uh, obviously record God's promises to King David. But take, for example, 2 Chronicles 21.7. God says, Nevertheless, um, because of the covenant the Lord has made to David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. This is what this child, the son, is sent to fulfill. And his reign is characterized by peace. Now, this is amazing. This is, this is the, the, the thought process that we approached earlier. Imagining an entire kingdom and imagining an entire reign that goes on forever, that never ends and is completely characterized by peace. This is massively significant. This son will be a bringer of peace. He will carry not only the, the identity, but the rule of prince of peace. Carrier out of of priests. Under the authority of divine and regal rule, he will be the one who enacts peace. That is what it means by I will be the prince of peace. And the actions of his government will make peace forever. So he's characterized by this perfect peace, which sounds amazing at face value, but there's such a richer, deeper understanding of what even he's saying here. I I wish I could really dive to the depth of what this word means. Uh, but I'm going to attempt to scratch the surface with you this morning. Um, when this word y- is used, this, this word peace is used in a prophetic and an ancient Semitic sense. In other words, uh, when the Hebrew prophets would use this word peace, um, it was so much more than just taking struggle away, removing striving. This, this word is actually one of the most common words used in the Hebrew language, the word shalom. Can you guys say that? Shalom. Shalom. Shalom is used as a greeting, it's used as a noun, it's used as an exclamation, it's used as a verb, uh, and it, it's, it's one of those things that you say shalom to people when you're leaving, when you're coming, um, when you're like caught off guard. Uh, but it also has so much more because it is like the entirety of what the, the Hebrew scriptures would prophesy as this is what we want. This is the goal. We want our nation to experience complete and total shalom. We want our lives, we want our kids to experience this shalom. Shalom is a word that doesn't just mean peace. It actually comes from the root word, which is shalom, which basically means um, completeness or, or wholeness, right? So take um, a, a million-piece puzzle and you put it completely together and that would be shalom, right? It speaks to a person or a thing or a group of people that are comprised of many complex parts being completely put together in wholeness and oneness and and completeness. So when used as a verb, shalom gives the meaning of things being restored back to the way they're supposed to be completely put together, the way that God designed them to be. It goes far beyond simply removing struggle and fighting from around us, Um, but it goes, it it is that, but it also continues to go to to the idea of putting things back together, restoring things to wholeness, even if it was better than the way you found it, because it's getting you to the point of the way God intended it to be. So whether it's your relationships or whether that's the government of a country or whether that's something being broken and putting back together, shalom means restoring to complete wholeness the way God intended it. Can you imagine all of your relationships being like that? Completely perfect, an absolute Christ-like love for everybody and everyone gives that. Like, not only this way, Are your relationships designed to function that way? That would be one idea of shalom. But obviously with God himself, can you imagine never sinning again? Never believing the lie that you needed something else instead of God? Can you imagine never breaching that relationship with sin? Completely perfect, restored to wholeness. Frankly, can you imagine a relationship with yourself that is completely the way that God designed it to be? That you see you the way God sees you. Can you imagine a relationship with God's creation the way God intended it to be? Like the Garden of Eden. Where every human ever, only ever treats God's creation as God's gift to them to have dominion over and not domination. Like, there is a restored relationship with creation, with oneself, with each other, and with God that is the fullness of what Shalom would mean in a relational sense. Completely putting things back together the way that they were designed to be. And then you take that with one individual and how they relate, and then you multiply that to every human ever. And so when given the title, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace, This implies the notion that Jesus, the Messiah, the son sent to be the one to deliver, he would not only do that, but he would restore an entire people group, the people of God, back into wholeness. That this prince would be the one who enacts restoration to wholeness in your relationship with God, restoration and reconciliation in your relationships with each other, Uh, a renewed relationship even with yourself, and a rejuvenated relationship with the rest of creation. This Prince of Peace would carry this out. This is the biblical implication of the title Prince of Peace. And he's the only one, he's the only one who's ever given the authority and the ability to offer restoration to wholeness, to completeness to those under under his reign. I'm sorry. To, to those who submit to him, Lord, once and for all. This is the Prince of Peace. And then we notice, finally, in the text that um, the second half of verse 7, he's going to establish and uphold this government, his kingdom, in righteousness and in justice. In righteousness, right, the commitment to completely avoid wrongdoing, and in justice, the commitment to Reconcile and restore and repair the devastating effects of wrong that's already been done. This son is going to reign in righteousness and justice. This will be his reign of peace. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. The zeal or even the jealousy, it could be translated, the jealousy of the Lord Almighty. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts. The jealousy of the Lord of, of armies will do this. Will accomplish this. Will accomplish What? I think that's a logical question to ask the text. Like, you said this, what does this mean? We'll accomplish what? We'll take his son and put him on the throne of David and surround him with a kingdom of people who are caught up in the love that he has, the jealous love he has for his son. In other words, infinite zeal is behind God's passion to enthrone his son on the throne of the universe which just happens to be the throne of David. And from there and forever, he will rule with justice and righteousness, and he will uphold it, and no one will be able to tear it down, and it will have no end to his expanse or to its shalom. And he will be a wonderful counselor. This son will be a mighty God. This son will be an everlasting father, and he will be the prince of peace. This is what the son was born to achieve the son the son now up until this point in the narrative no personal name is given so who is this son if you're if you're israel hearing isaiah prophesy this you go awesome i can't wait can it be today who's the guy Who is the name, what is the name of the son that is given to us? Who is this person? If it's possible for God's people to have final and total peace and restoration under the government of the son, who does God reveal him to be? You know, that's a great question. I'm glad you guys asked. So I'm going to take you on a journey a few hundred years in the future to Luke chapter one. Turn with me to Luke chapter one. If you're watching online and you already know the answer to this question, type it in the chat with some praise hands, okay? Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I get goosebumps every time I read this in connection to Isaiah 9. In the sixth month, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town. Come on, someone tell me where this is. Galilee! Oh, this is not a Gentile town anymore. It sounds like a light's about to come to it. Can you hear it? Uh, To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of, oh, who is it? David! The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this was. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You're going to give birth, you're going to be with child and give birth to a son, a son, a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus and he will be great and be called son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. You're married and you're going like, oh, I'm starting to tingle a little bit because I've heard these words before. Very familiar with this prophecy. I've been looking forward to this my whole life starting to sweat a little bit, maybe even hyperventilate, because I am not the person I thought would be the one to usher in this great promise to my people. If I'm Mary, I'm like... They give her a ton of modesty. She goes, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Like... This would wreck me. I would be like messed up hearing this because everything that's been foretold, over 400 prophecies about the Messiah are spoken about referred into this son and you're saying he he is going to enter planet earth right here. Everything that's said about this son, you've chosen me. God is finally announcing the arrival of this son, this child, this prince of peace deliberate and restore his people again. So, so contrary to the fears experienced by those who are fearing the superpower of Assyria in, Luke chapter, or in, in Isaiah chapter 8, and contrary to the, the fears of those fearing the superpower of Rome in Luke chapter 1, There was finally a free and joy filled blessing prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 to those who would put their trust in the deliverance of God. In other words, this sun, this sun is coming, is the answer to all your fears and all your pain that will basically terrorize the people of earth forever. Like, when you sign on the dotted line to become a human and you come out, and like part of the. contract agreement is you're going to experience pain and have fears. That's, that's, that's just part of the deal of being human. And, and, and this son is going to offer a free and joy-filled blessing, a deliverance, a liberation, and a restoration in the face of that. Jesus, this baby that is promised to marry now, is equated with the Prince of Peace. He's the son of the Most High God, seated on the throne of David, reigning in justice and righteousness forevermore, coming through, through this woman. Jesus will be the one who gives wonderful counsel. Jesus is going to be the mighty God, mighty and strong, even over the world's greatest superpower. Jesus will be an everlasting father for his people and never leave them alone or abandoned. Jesus is the one who restores everything to wholeness as it should be in complete and perfect shalom. It's Jesus. It's not Assyria. It's not Rome. It's not America. It's not a politician or a law. It's not having things go your way. It's not a new job title. It's, it's not distractions or social life or or your workouts. It's not your drugs, whether it's your pharmaceutical ones or your digital ones. It's not your bank account. It's not your stuff. And it's not even your good behavior that's going to bring peace and completeness and wholeness and restoration to your life. It's Jesus, and it's only ever been Jesus. And the reason that Jesus can create shalom, peace, everywhere he goes, especially in your life, is because he is peace. Jesus is peace. That's why he brings peace. That's why he rules in peace. I love how uh, Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. He wrote a letter, and in it he said, this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses. uh, I'm going to start in verse 12. He said, Remember at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Because Jesus is the literal embodiment of God's peace everywhere he goes, Shalom, God's perfect and total restoration to completeness and wholeness, the way that he intended things to be. Everywhere Jesus goes, shalom breaks out. And so what is also true is those who come to him and submit to his reign and submit to his way, for those, they are brought into complete and total shalom. Peace, perfect peace. Is a promise that he keeps because peace is who he is. Perfect peace is a promise he keeps because peace is who he is. In the presence of Jesus, there is perfect peace. But only those who have surrendered themselves to his reign, who live in the boundaries of His kingdom, who are subject to His rule in their life. Only those people are admitted into this presence. In other words, when you finally come to Jesus, or He finds you, and you bow in total submission to the Prince of Peace, that is when you receive His complete and total restoration to wholeness. He begins that process the minute that you surrender your heart And you give over your life to Him. And He he guarantees that promise with the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the Holy Spirit begins to work that out in your life. Removing struggle, removing striving, restoring you and putting the pieces back together that you've been just trying to hang on to. And He begins to continue that process all the way until He returns. The process of making you more and more like Him. The process of restoring all of the broken pieces that you... Can't seem to hold together. And he, the promise of the Holy Spirit now is a guarantee of the promise of complete and total peace then. So if we travel back to the text of Isaiah 9, we understand as, as this peace, this promised peace, this promised restoration, this promised deliverance is given. There are actually two main responses that are intended to Isaiah's original audience that I believe intended for each one of us today. The first intended response is a removal of gloom that came from, came from uh, fearing the Assyrians. There's this darkness and this fear and this gloom that was actually removed um, when, when the promised son was given. And then there's also the second response is that their fear was flipped. At one time they were fearing the Assyrians and, then, and now the offer is to, to fear something else instead. This amazing prophecy about the coming son, the Prince of Peace, the eternal, eternal ruler of the throne of David, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. This prophecy is about Jesus and it meant that gloom is gone and that fear is flipped. Gloom is gone and fear is flipped. Check out, Chapter 8, verse 22. Isaiah 8, 22. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they'll be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as men rejoice at harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Like, yes, all this free stuff! There's joy, gloom is gone. You don't have to live in the gloom of impending pain or suffering or loneliness or humbling or manipulation or brokenness or intimidation that this world can threaten you with. God is actively working out your deliverance and your shalom. A joy-filled release from gloom is the first intended response to this prophecy that comes from the mouth of Isaiah and it finds its application in the son born to Mary finds his application in Jesus. Because Jesus is the wonderful counselor, I never have to be without guidance or direction. The wonderful counselor banishes confusion. Because Jesus is the mighty God, even though it feels like it, from my perspective, my life really isn't out of control. The ruler of heaven's armies is watching over me to protect me and provide for me. Because Jesus is the everlasting Father, I'm not an orphan. I'm royalty. I'm part of a heavenly lineage in line to inherit all of the love and the glory of God's family. I'm fiercely adored and cherished by a Father who will never leave, who will never give up, who will never uh, lose interest in me, who will never leave me. And because Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and because he is the mighty God, and because he is the everlasting Father, I don't have to believe the lies of fear or anxiety again. Fear's banished. Anxiety is exposed. Stress is alleviated. Brokenness is reversed in the presence of this baby who came from heaven to dwell among us. He is the Prince of Peace. My gloom is gone. The second intended response is that my fear is flipped. Just, just notice for a second, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11, the Lord spoke to me with a strong hand, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, don't call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread because he will be a sanctuary for you. You no longer have to fear for your lives in the terror of this looming and intimidating superpower that's trying to subject you and control you. Instead, you're to live in the disciplined and practiced fear of God. A fear that is a deeply felt awe of the beauty and the grandeur of God's glory and also of His grace. I heard it said one time, fear is kind of like You stand in front of an entire tsunami, right? And you're terrified of the tsunami. Partly because it's going to kill you, but partly because you're recognizing how powerful it is. But what if you could stand watching the exact same tsunami hidden under a cave that would protect you? You would still have fear for the tsunami. You wouldn't go out there. But your fear would be a high awe, a, an extreme value of what it says it's going to do. There is an immense amount of fear you have for it, even though you're not scared of it now because you're under protection. Jesus is that protection. So instead of fearing Assyria, Israel, you can fear God. Instead, why is that a good offer? Here's the thing. You are not the largest thing in your life. You're not. You're not the most powerful. You're not the most effective. You're not the smartest thing in your life. So there will always be something outside of you, separate from you, that you will have highest reverence for. There will always be something, whether it's the opinions of others or the opinions of God, whether it's the power and influence of others or the power of God, whether it's the pleasure of this world or the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment of God, whether it's false security of a relationship or eternal security in God, there's always going to be something you don't have control over that will dictate how you see life. Translation, there's always something to fear. Choose your fear. Life will always be out of your control. Choose your fear. Life doesn't always play out the way you hoped. And at the point that it feels like it's falling apart, you're going to run in the direction of the thing that you fear and value the highest. You might turn into a substance to numb the pain. You might turn to tons of fun just to make you forget about the things that are hard in life. You might run to a relationship to mask feelings of insignificance. You might turn to sports or to video games to give you an artificial sense of, um, of affirmation. You might turn to gossip or slander or even outright confrontation as a way of putting others down to make yourself feel a little bit higher. But when things stop making sense, you're going to move in the direction of the thing that you fear which you highly revere and seek after. Life is out of control for all of us. But you can choose your fear. Jesus, this Prince of Peace, has come to rescue his people from the dangers that they feared and to restore them to complete and total wholeness. In other words, he's come to pick up the broken pieces of your life and put them back together to finally and completely restore you to total wholeness. This is what the son was born to accomplish. He's your prince of peace. He is the reason your gloom can be gone. He's the reason your fear can be flipped. His title says that he's going to carry an entire people group and rule and restore them. A people group that have submitted to his reign, he's going to bring them into a restored relationship with God. He's going to bring them into reconciled relationships with others. He's going to bring them into a renewed relationship with yourself. He's going to bring them into a rejuvenated relationship with all of creation. Because of Jesus, we can have perfect peace. Perfect peace is a promise he keeps because peace is who he is. And this is what the angels singing over the shepherds on that forgotten hillside this is what they instinctively knew because they live in the presence of the Prince of Peace there is no gloom their fear is completely for him this is why they are able to say in Luke two fourteen, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those upon whom his favor rests Jesus is peace and he brings peace And he rules in peace. Perfect peace is a promise he keeps because peace is who he is. In the presence of Jesus, there's perfect peace. You can have freedom. You can have wholeness in the face of anxiety or worry or brokenness or depression or devastation or confusion or crippling fear because Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he rules over all. He's gone before. He's overcome and he's overwhelming you with peace in the middle of a complex mess that you can't seem to hold together. He's your Prince of Peace. You don't have to let worry or anxiety live rent-free in your life. Jesus is the Lord of our hearts and when we surrender to his reign, he gives an inheritance called perfect peace. Are you looking for peace? Church online, are you feeling like you need peace? Jesus is that and more. He is actively working to not only remove the fear and the worry and the anxiety from your life, but also to put together the broken pieces and restore you to wholeness. My invitation to you this season, this Christmas, this Christmas of 2020, would you receive that? Maybe, maybe you're listening and you've actually never received this perfect peace from the Prince of Peace. You've never received the offer of a restoration to wholeness in your relationship with God. That, that if you died today, you don't know what the rest of eternity would look like for you. The Bible simply says all you've got to do is you've got to admit your part you could admit your sin, that, that the broken pieces in my life I had a big part of. I, I am the reason that my relationship with God is severed. My sin, my sin is real. I did it. I'm a sinner. And because of that, the Bible says, I deserve to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And that's terribly scary, which is why God loved you so much and sent his son a Christmas, as the Prince of Peace, so that not only could he come and bring peace, but then he could grow up and then die on the cross on your behalf. He, he died on the cross so you wouldn't have to. He bore the infinite wrath of God and the separation from God so that you wouldn't have to. He died to forgive you of your sin and rose again to give you a new life. The Bible says if you simply believe in Jesus as your Savior, And then also that you confess him as Lord. You'll be saved. So admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Confess him as the Lord of your life. The Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be saved not only from an eternity of having to pay the consequences of your own sin, but also saved to a completely restored peace in the presence of God forever. So maybe you've never received this offer of peace before. If you're watching online, there's a tab that's going to pop up and it says, I commit my life to Jesus. I'd encourage you, click on that and click the button that follows to be able to pray with somebody. They'd love to be able to chat with you and pray with you about what that looks like in your life. Maybe here today, you're like, man, I, I, I've never received that. And my offer to you is, you can talk to God. You can confess to God that you're a sinner. And, and you can confess to God that you believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again for you to forgive you of your sin and give you a new life. And you can talk to God and say, I, I surrender to you as Lord. I need your peace. And that will be what he promises. He, he will keep that promise because he is peace. Now, maybe you have. You have received this offer of peace. My invitation to you, don't keep it to yourself. The intention of the Prince of Peace is that he would rule over a expansive kingdom of which you are a part, but not the only part. Would you share this offer of peace this season? You might be the only Bible somebody ever reads. You might be the only gospel somebody ever hears. Maybe God is using you. He's calling you. He's speaking to you to be the one who brings this offer of shalom to the rest of the world. Starting with the person next to you, or around you, or living next to you, or across the street from you, or across the cubicle from you. Maybe you're the reason that somebody else has a chance at peace. Would you share this peace? In the presence of Jesus, there's perfect peace. So, loosen up your control, lay down your grudge. Shift your fear and come to him, the Prince of Peace, today. He wants to meet with you. He wants to use you. Let's pray. God, you are overwhelmingly good That you would not only forgive us, but you would completely work to restore and mend and bind and repair and bring us into the wholeness and the completeness of your love. God, I pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way today and draw us into your peace so that this season would be one like none other, that we would have a testimony of your glory and your greatness in your son Jesus as a personal experience of our lives. Lord, please draw us into your peace today. Amen.